2: The Guardian.
1: Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland.
2: Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute. The Office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, will to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect and defend. Preserve, protect and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President.
1: America has a new president. Joe Biden is in the White House as the 46th President of the United States, which means Donald Trump is no longer the president. Ding dong, the witch is dead has been the theme, the signature tune on social media. And it's almost as if this moment I mean, somebody was joking that kind of they said this day would never come, you know, channeling Barack Obama from the 2008 campaign. And in a way, there were times when it felt as if maybe this day never would come. First of all, all the anxiety, and we charted it on this podcast about whether. Donald Trump would even lose, uh, you know, the anxiety about whether he could somehow pull off a second term. And then after the election, those days of waiting for the results, it took us till the Saturday after the election before the networks called it. And so then there were the days waiting for the official results to be tabulated, then the certification in the states by the Electoral College on December the 14th. And on it went. But there was always this air of unreality. Would we actually make it or would there be... Another twist in the story. It just meant that this was an inauguration day like no other. Uh, It was always going to be like that because Donald Trump signalled early that he would not turn up. He did not recognise Joe Biden as his legitimate successor and therefore would not be there. There was also, of course, the pandemic, which meant social distancing, crowds, people told to stay away, you can't come, which is so weird for an inauguration because normally it is millions of people there. And then thirdly, the big one came a fortnight ago on January the 6th, the storming of the Capitol, which meant uh, that there was a massive security presence in Washington, D.C. Again, made it impossible for people to come and turn the city into uh, you know, a locked down, in the kind of war zone sense of that word, rather than the pandemic sense of that word. So that was the context for this inauguration like no other. And yet people all around the world waiting for this moment, looking at their watch for the second when Donald Trump would no longer be the President of the United States. Who better to discuss this extraordinary day with than Richard Wolff, Guardian US columnist and longtime friend of the podcast. So Richard, this was the day we'd been counting down towards for what feels like years, but really just, I suppose, three months in the transition. The first event that everyone had their eyes on was Donald Trump himself and how he exited the stage. What did you make of how he made his farewell?
0: Well, first of all, speak for yourself. I've been counting down for years for this moment. So (laughs) as, as much as Donald Trump has been Uh, a gift to columnists the world over, uh, we could all do with seeing that gift out the back door. And, And that's, you know, what Donald Trump did to some degree. First of all, to be fair, and it pains me to have to be fair to Donald Trump, but presidents often, all of them, all of them that I've seen, have outgoing presidents have had these sort of mini rallies, events after the fact, after the inauguration where they gather with their, you know, loyal staff and say, you know, don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. That's literally the line that Bill Clinton said. So not unusual. What is clearly unusual is, of course, Donald Trump didn't partake in any of the ceremonials, uh, rituals, norms, politeness, respect, you name it. He snuck out before the event so that he could go and fly on Air Force One, Air Force One, not being the plane, but the name of the plane that the president uh, flies in so it could still technically be air force one and then this weird mix of for a start the pathetic crowd of blood relatives and paid staff and this you know litany of sad tired lies about how everything was great
2: the things that we've done have been just incredible and i couldn't have done them done it without you so just a goodbye we love you we will be back in some form
0: the whole thing was, you know, the perfect fabricated cherry on top of this rather sad looking cupcake of a presidency.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and, and I suppose that wasn't the last act of exit, although it was the last sort of performance. I mean, the last thing he did, and again, it is something former presidents do, which your outgoing presidents do, and that is the pardon. But there'd been huge anxiety that he would do some crazy thing involving or dramatic, unprecedented thing of pardoning himself, pardoning the the blood relatives. You know, as the clock was counting down, I just thought, is there going to be one last twist? And at two minutes to midday, he's going to pardon himself. But that didn't come.
0: What do you make of it? Not as outrageously disruptive as we thought it would be. Uh, most likely because there was going to be legal jeopardy, both for him and for his family in doing so. No blanket pardons for people who attended his mob inspired riot at the Capitol a couple of weeks ago, again, for reasons we think of legal jeopardy. But, you know, for any other presidency, uh, the otherwise disastrous pardon of someone like Steve Bannon. He is so called chief strategist of yore, who in a delicious, delicious irony, uh, only possible in the Trump era. He pardoned for having defrauded Trump followers of their hard-earned cash to build the wall that he was building anyway. I mean, you know, as I said, other presidents would have been sunk by this, but of course his reputation is already in the gutter. So, uh, you know, does it add anything? Does it take away? It's Not as bad as it could have been, which is unfortunately something we can't say about his entire presidency.
1: The time then did pass and the focus became the event itself. And obviously just, you know, multiple layers of weird because, you know, both of us have covered inaugurations. We've been there. They normally have the atmosphere of a kind of civic festival where the streets are filled. You can get a million plus people on the day, millions milling around in the days leading up to it. But this time we've only, you know, from where I am and perhaps where you are, we've only seen the pictures. But the cliche now to say it looks like the green zone in Baghdad or Kabul, and 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 so that was the kind of backdrop.
0: Yeah, you know, I thought it was a strange mix of the crushingly, boringly familiar. Many of the same trappings. Of previous inaugurations, not just the you know, ceremonial military parades and music, but but the notes of the speech around democracy and participation and American traditions. At the same time as this very familiar ritual, we also had the completely abnormal, the social distancing, the mask wearing, as you point out, this highly militarized zone that the District of Columbia now is, Of course, the good news is there was no sign of trouble, which is what you get for 25,000 troops in a very small place. The bad news is this is a moment, traditionally, inauguration day of people coming together, of the streets, Pennsylvania Avenue in particular, being absolutely packed with humanity. And both because of the pandemic, but also because of the the insurrection, you're looking at a a sombre, empty figurative symbolic inauguration these are important moments and they've done their best in the Biden team in a very bad situation to mark that change to project something in a very big way but there's a a heart of it that is hollowed out when you don't have the crowds
1: yes i think all of that is right and and uh, and yet curiously because of what had happened and particularly the storming of Capitol Hill, some of the even very routine sort of rote things acquired new and even quite emotional meaning. So, for example, when Mike Pence appeared... Ladies and gentlemen, the Vice President of the United States, the Honourable Michael R. Pence and Mrs. Karen Pence. I mean, Mike Pence is in some ways such a sort of hollow, empty man, sort of empty suit of a figure for four years... But his mere presence there looked like an act of defiance, as if to say, Trump is not here, but I am here. And by being here, I'm signalling that I do accept the legitimacy of this election. And I felt the same seeing Mitch McConnell there and Roy Blunt, this, you know, again, just sort of regular uh, Republican senator, but he has a sort of an official role in presiding over the inauguration ceremonies. All of these people there, because again, the, the, the bar is set so low, I thought there was something powerful in seeing those Republicans who were there, former President George W. Bush, as if to say, look, despite this attempt to break the democratic sort of chain of continuity that takes us all the way back to 1789, the first inauguration, we are taking a stance against that. And I found that in some ways quite sort of powerful.
0: Yes, this is what George W. Bush liked to call the soft bigotry of low expectations. Right. We, uh, we should be grateful that Mike Pence uh, did not join in the effort to ignore the Constitution and stage a coup. Um, and ignore democracy we should be grateful that s- at some point some officials i would argue more actually at the state level a handful of officials held out against the effort to refuse to certify the vote or fabricate uh, fraud allegations whatever it was they could have also showed some courage for the last four years and i think if liberal democracy is going to survive anywhere in the world uh, obviously in especially the united states it's going to require more than a one moment or two it does require a a concerted continuous effort especially for republicans to drive out the forces of autocracy and fascism that have taken over the party remember that most of the people who vote republican do not believe that joe biden was elected fair and square and it will take a lot of public statements from people like Mitch McConnell and Roy Blunt and Mike Pence and all the rest of them to say Biden is a legitimate president. You may have, you know, disagreements, but it's legitimate and this is what democracy is. The boilerplate of democracy, of we respect elections and this is the United States of America, all of that stuff suddenly has meaning because we came so close to losing it.
1: Right no I think that's exactly it uh, it's the the expectations have uh, you know shouldn't be low but that is the effect of where they were and you say that you know those people need to make a statement in a way they made a statement by being there. I mean, I agree it shouldn't be a big deal, but it felt it. Before We're going to get on to Biden's speech. I just want to go through the things that went before it, though, because I think so. there were various interesting moments. And one of them came, you know, and by tradition, it's always first, is the swearing in of the new vice president. That I will
0: well and faithfully discharge.
2: That I will well and faithfully discharge.
1: The
0: duties of the office on which I am about to
2: enter. The duties of the office upon which I am about to enter. So help me God. So
0: help me God.
2: So help me God.
1: Oh, Even if there were no pandemic and there hadn't been an attempt to overturn American democracy two weeks ago, that in itself would have been a big deal. And I felt that was writ large on the face of Kamala Harris, a face I thought of, of joy and kind of exuberant joy in at becoming America's vice president.
0: Yeah, historic event, and and I've known Kamala Harris, Kamala Devi Harris, uh, for many many years. She brings that energy to everything, every office she's held, no matter how hard. You know, I, again, there's this sort of duality to the, the day's events, where you have this historic moment, but also blindingly normal. You know, I I, I do think it's one of those historic barriers that should have fallen so long ago that it's a sort of no brainer why why would we even think that this was such a big deal but of course it is a big deal and in addition to being a historic figure in her own right as a black woman as a woman of south asian descent and, and just who she is she's also transitional in the sense that she's of a younger generation than joe biden and many of the people who are leading Capitol Hill on, on in both sides of Congress and both parties right now. And and I think that's where she really comes into play. She points to the future of the Democratic Party and, and the debates that are ahead of us. So fascinating story, a fascinating figure and a historic moment for sure.
1: Let's go on to the Biden speech itself well, first, before that, he took the oath first. He did it a little bit early. I mean, and there were people who've, you know, we've we've talked often about my neurotic state these last four years. I thought, oh no, now we're going to have some craziness where Biden has taken the oath at eleven minutes to noon washington time but technically doesn't become president till just after noon what craziness could happen here and i noticed quite a few people sort of tweeting few at one minute past noon because it then became official but it was quite noticeable that biden was quite sort of Matter of fact, I thought about his oath, about taking the oath, just somebody who has seen a lot and is not going to get overly excited somehow. Uh, I may be reading too much into it, but he didn't sort of, you know, do the full biting the lip, lump in the throat thing. He did it in a kind of business-like way, as if I've got work to do and I've seen enough of life to not get the, allow, uh, you know, the highs
0: to be too high or the lows to be too low. Look, I I think one of the distinguishing factors and one of the ways that he was able to navigate this election year was that he never let Donald Trump get inside his head. And I think that served him very well. It serves him well that he's not on Twitter all day like the rest of us. So, yeah, I think he has a a longer term view, a a strong sense of who he is, which is also an enormous contrast from Donald Trump. And don't get me wrong, Joe Biden gets emotional. He got emotional just the other day as he was talking um, about his son at a place uh, place in Delaware named after his son. He is prone to speak at length about his family uh, or every generation of Irish man and woman in his family. Uh, and and he wears his heart on his sleeve. But yes, th- this was a direct, pointed and extremely Biden-esque speech that hit on very familiar themes for him. He genuinely believes that politics is personal and that you can reach out and touch people literally and physically and figuratively. That's what his speech was. It was not emotional for him to the extent that he he can get teary and choke up, Uh, and yet it was emotional because we have been bereft of the physical, personal touch of politics for these last four years. Yes. So in the speech,
1: I mean, the sort of humanity and compassion was right there front and centre in the text. I mean, for one thing, he did something that Trump himself just never did, which is he acknowledged the death and loss and grief that the country has gone through. And uh, there was a,
2: he called, for example, for a moment of silence. Let's say a silent prayer. For those who've lost their lives and those left behind, and for our country. To me, this was it was again, it's it's partly this low expectations
1: point simply because Trump never did this. He never spoke in that idiom of bereavement. It felt very significant when Joe Biden was able to do it and did do it.
0: Yes, yeah, so look, I I, I think recognizing the the suffering of the pandemic has been a constant for Joe Biden. He relates it to his own personal grief and family tragedy. So Biden, by nature and by policy, I think, was better placed to do this. and and it's authentic for him. he's He's not praying as show. You know, his day started out going to church with members of Congress from both parties. He's not the guy who holds a Bible upside down, outside a church. That does mark a difference.
1: What about this theme of his that he pursued all the way through, which was
2: unity? History, faith, and reason show the way, the way of unity. We can see each other, not as adversaries, but as neighbors. We can treat each other with dignity and respect. We can join forces, stop the shouting and lower the temperature. For without unity, there is no peace. Again,
1: normal times, that would sound utterly platitudinous. We've all got to come together. We've heard it before. Barack Obama was, you know, there are no red states, no blue states, there are just the United States. He said, today, Joe Biden, I'm going to be president of all Americans, uh, et cetera. And yet, because of the moment, pandemic, and what happened two weeks ago on Capitol Hill, it seemed to you know, have extra force and this standout line, which is, we must end this uncivil war. Is that just nice on rhetoric for Inauguration Day, or does it go somewhere?
0: Well, uh, I think there's a massive amount of scepticism that Joe Biden can succeed However, for Joe Biden, this is what he believes. He straddled the line in Democratic politics uh, in the Senate between both parties. He believes he can bring people together. Uh, Progressives in the Democratic Party think this is naive nonsense. Uh, Republicans are already using this line against him to uh, defend themselves against every piece of divisive politics Every part of responsibility in the insurrection. They're saying, don't come after us uh, on the insurrection because otherwise you won't be living up to your line about unity. So uh, we'll see very early on if this actually can hold. Uh, the first piece of legislation, uh, S1 and HR1 in the House and the Senate, is about democracy. It's about expanding voting rights, uh, reforming campaign finance. know, If the the Republicans block it with a filibuster, which they are likely to do, it won't get 60 votes. There aren't 60 votes in the Senate for it. And the appeal for unity will fail immediately on something as fundamental as standing up for democracy, which given the events of the last two weeks is pretty vital to the future of the American Republic, but also the presidency of Joe Biden. So I, I think this... Language of unity is sincere, but I think it's going to face an immediate test.
1: Yeah, it's going, to, it's going to run into a hostile fire very, very quickly. I mean, just one last thing on the speech. I just didn't want to leave this because it leapt out at me. He talked about climate change, the climate crisis. Uh, you know, we didn't hear much of from on that from the, his predecessor. That was significant. But I thought this line about truth when he said that the recent
2: weeks and months have taught us a painful oh, lesson. There is truth and there are lies, lies told for power and for profit. And each of us has a duty and a responsibility as citizens, as Americans, and especially as leaders, leaders who have pledged to honor our Constitution and protect our nation to defend the truth and defeat the lies. But I thought that reference to lies told for profit, and
1: it was in, in, immediately picked up by Chris Wallace of Fox News, who said that is a message to us, and uh, meaning the media, but really in a way, you feel it's a message directly to Fox and organisations you know, like it, Newsmax, and even perhaps social media, who've managed to make money out of this denial of, of the facts. And that felt like a, an interesting thing for Biden to put front and centre in his inauguration
0: speech. Yeah, I, I totally agree. He called out disinformation. Uh, he called out the right-wing media in, in that regard. But he also called out white supremacists. And and that was- By name. By name. And so I think, you know, you put all of those things together. And, and yes, there was the gauzy unity democracy angle, but, but he was pointed. Racial justice, climate crisis, white supremacists and disinformation. They were clear targets he called out. So we should not ignore that because because he's taking them seriously as as his targets for reform and as the enemies of his agenda.
1: Yeah, let's just talk about the 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 what the next steps, if you like. I mean, straight afterwards, Joe, Joe Biden immediately turns turns around and goes to work with a so many promises he made to do on day one. So what does day one? look like? What is Joe Biden doing at the desk in the Oval Office if he's there right now?
0: Well, he is signing these executive orders. Uh, m- much of it is to reverse the most egregious parts of of Trump's executive actions, things like the so-called Muslim travel ban, building of the border wall, uh, withdrawal from the Paris Accords, But it extends beyond that, because they're already introducing the first piece of legislation they want to propose, albeit not the first that the Congress will take up. But that legislation is comprehensive immigration reform with a path to citizenship for 11 million undocumented Americans. That is a significant change of tone. And to cap it all, there will will have been, by the time people listen to this, a press briefing by the new White House press secretary, Jen Psaki. This is all to mark a complete breach and rupture with the Trump pattern and, and behavior, the transparency of actually putting out a presidential schedule that said something more than many meetings and many calls, which was literally all that Trump put out for the last several weeks, and also having no press briefings. And when you had a press briefing, it was nothing more than a statement and a haranguing of the media. So these are important signals that things are something of a restoration.
1: Rich, inevitably, we can't help um, but still be slightly obsessed with the man who's lost power today. There was the tradition of the note left on the desk or in the desk. A lot of people have been circulating the very gracious note that George Herbert Walker Bush Bush senior left for Bill Clinton. Uh, we, everyone assumed that Trump would do no such thing for Joe Biden. Then we were told in the course of the day, actually, he did leave a note. Any word on what that note says? And if you don't know, what would be your guess?
0: Well, uh, yes, uh, I guess we were mildly surprised that he wrote the note. We don't yet know its contents, but uh, let's just uh, admit that they always become public. My my sad expectation is that it will be all about uh, one Donald J. Trump and his achievements, so I don't expect graciousness or generosity of spirit, which was most definitely the notes that have been left there before. You know, Barack Obama liked to talk about the presidency as part of a, an ongoing story. And he said, you know, you just have to make sure that you get your paragraph right. I think there's every expectation that Trump's paragraph will be short and wrong.
1: Richard, you've followed the Trump presidency throughout every twist and turn, and you've shared so much with us through this extraordinary journey. Thank you, as always, for joining us. My pleasure. And that is very much that. Donald Trump is out and Joe Biden is in. For the next few months, I'll be back here every week covering US politics under this new and very different administration. So do make sure to keep checking the Politics Weekly feed every Friday morning to catch up on the latest from the United States. But that is it from me for now. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please look after yourselves, and thanks for listening.
0: That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies, Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.